I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, and this morning we'll be looking at the last three verses, verses 18 through 20. Please give the Word of God your full attention. Habakkuk 2, verses 18 through 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. One of the rules in our household when I was growing up is that we were never allowed to put any object on top of a Bible. That rule made the coffee table in our living room, uh, one-third of it made it useless because on our coffee table, which is what I used in the living room to draw on, to play games, to eat snacks in front of the TV, one-third of the coffee table was taken up by a huge family Bible. So it was inconvenient, but I never thought a lot about it until after I became a Christian. And now, in hindsight, when I look back on it, I think probably, and I don't know what ancestor of mine first put that rule in place that was passed down through my family history, but I'm sure that the intention was good to teach the family members that the Bible is special. It's a holy book. It's the Word of God. It should be treated with reverence. And in that respect, it actually was very effective in my life because when I became a teenager and I started asking some of the deeper questions about life, some of the hard questions about life and reality, I knew that that big family Bible on the coffee table had the answers because of the way that it was treated in my family. That was the holy book. That was the Word of God. That's where I went to to find the answers to the questions that were troubling me. And when I read the Bible, the Holy Spirit used those readings to lead me to Christ. And in Christ, I found my salvation. But even though that was what I was raised with, and even though it was effective in pointing me to the scriptures for the answers to life, I did not pass that rule along to my own children. And because I believe that it causes, there's two dangers. Even though it can be used of God as it is used in my life, it can cause two dangers in the life of any family. One, it can lead to legalism. Secondly, it can lead to a situation where you shift your reverence from God himself to an object. And that is something that is part of our nature, is an tendency to want to reduce God and all of his glory to some object that we can manipulate, that we can use. You can see this in the way that Muslims treat their holy book, which they call the Koran. 
There is a former rule, formal rule in Islam that you cannot place an object on top of the Quran. You cannot put the Quran on the floor. Matter of fact, when you're not actually having it open and reading it, you have to have the Quran closed, you have to have it wrapped in a special cloth, and you have to have it put in a special and secure place. If you do want to open it and read it, you have to go through a set of rituals where you wash your hands and your feet and your face, ritual washings, so that you are worthy to open the holy book and read it. Non-Muslims are not allowed to read the Quran if it's written in its original Arabic. And if a Quran becomes worn out, there are very special ways in which you are only allowed, special ways, which the only ways you're allowed to dispose of it. One of those would be to dig a deep hole and bury it, or place it in a place with running water in a stream, or a place of running water where the water can wash away the ink. There are just special rules about how it can be disposed of. And because the Quran is treated in these ways, the way that the Muslims interact with it is different than the way that we Christians interact with the holy book, the Bible. Muslims gain spiritual points, they gain religious points by reciting it and memorizing it, but they don't study it the way that we do, that we do the Bible. To us, the Bible is like a love letter from our Creator and our Redeemer. It's how He communicates with us. It's how He speaks to our heart. It's how we know Him. It's how we experience His presence. And so we don't love the Bible because it's a holy, mysterious relic. We love the Bible because God uses it to communicate to us. Today we are looking at the end of chapter 2 of the book of Habakkuk. And here we come to the fifth woe. If you were with us last week, we looked at the first four woes. God basically addresses the nation of Babylon and pronounces five judgments against Babylon. Remember, in the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk is, has registered a complaint with God that as he looks at the people of Judah, the people of God, the people of the covenant, he sees a sinful people, a people who need to be disciplined who need to repent. But God is not acting. He's allowing this wickedness to go on. And so he complains, say, God, why aren't you doing anything about the wickedness of your people? And God answers him, as we have seen, by saying, I am going to do something, but you're not going to like it. I'm going to raise up the Babylonian empire, this evil Babylonian empire, and they are going to come and they're going to, to destroy Judah and Jerusalem. I'm going to use the empire of Babylon to discipline my own people. And Habakkuk's response to that was, well, that's not right. That's not fair. How can you use a people who are more wicked, who are pagans, how can you use those people to punish your own people? And so th this chapter two has been God's answer to Habakkuk's question, where he gives five statements of judgment against Babylon. He's saying to Habakkuk, I will judge Babylon. The judge of all the earth will do what's right. Every sin will be punished. And here are the, the sins of the people of Babylon. And he's listed the first four. We looked at those last week. Violent plundering of weaker nations, the shedding of the blood 
of those who are made in the image of God, the enslavement and oppression of weaker nations, the abuse of people, the abuse of the earth. And so we come here then to the fifth woe this morning. And in this statement of judgment, God goes to the very root of the wickedness of the Babylonian people, and thereby he goes to the very root of wickedness in mankind in general. That issue is idolatry. Here he talks about the idolatry of Babylon. How they have rejected the one true God. They have rejected their creator. They have rejected his word. Instead, they have run to false gods. They're trusting in false gods. And trust is the whole issue of the book of Habakkuk. Who do you trust? We saw that the key verse in the book of Habakkuk is chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. But it begs the question, faith in who? Faith in what? And so what God does in this last woe is he shows that idols are worthless objects of anyone's faith. Idols are worthless objects of faith. When we who have grown up and lived in Western society read the many, many passages in Scripture that deal with idolatry, it's very easy to check out. Maybe you've done that already. Because idolatry to us, the idea of creating an image and then bowing down and worshiping before that image just seems primitive. I mean, we've grown up with the blessing of Western society, which has been heavily influenced by Protestantism. And so we know that it's wrong to use images. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the second commandment says, you shall not worship the one true God by the use of images. And so what we, in our society, it just seems so primitive, so anti-intellectual. Seems like we've evolved so much beyond the idea of creating an image and bowing down in front of it and worshiping. Although that does happen all over the world elsewhere, in other cultures, in other parts of the world. It's still going on. But to us, it seems this is, you know, this might have been relevant 2,000 years ago in Rome or Greece, but it's not relevant to us today. What does idolatry have to do with me? What we're going to see as we look at what God says about the idolatry of the Babylonians is that we've become much better at hiding our idolatry, but we're just as guilty of it in our own culture. What does God say about idolatry here? Why is it foolish? Three reasons. First one, idols are man-made. Very simple. Why would you worship something that is made by sinful man? Verse 18, what profit is an idol for its maker trusts in his own creation? We were made to worship our creator, but instead we worship our own creation. This is like God worshiping us after he created us in his own image. How ridiculous, how foolish, how objectionable would that be? Many Old Testament passages mock and riddle the practice of worshiping idols. What, what it looks like to God. This is what the passages of the Old Testament are trying to get us to do. What does it look like to God when he creates us in his own image so that we'd worship him and instead we turn away from him and worship things that we've created with our own hands? 
What does it look like? And let me give you one example. Psalm 135, beginning in verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Over in Isaiah chapter 44, God goes on at much greater length in a kind of a parody, a satire, mocking the idea of what an idolater does. He says, an idolater will go out into the woods and cut down a tree. And then he'll drag that tree back home and he'll cut it up and he'll use half of that tree to make fire so that he can warm himself and cook himself dinner. And then he'll use the other half of the tree to carve out an idol and then he'll bow down and worship the idol. That's what it looks like from God's perspective. That's what it should look like to the perspective of God's people. Now, to be fair, people who practiced idolatry, both in the present and in the ancient past, they don't really see the objects of metal, wood, and stone as being gods. What they believe is that they according to rituals and instructions, have carved an image that is pleasing to these gods who are spiritual beings, more powerful than we are. And what they do is they create an image that if they go through the right rituals and do the right acts of sacrifice and obedience, that that god might be willing to come and inhabit, to dwell, to actually enter into that object. And once that god or goddess has located themselves within the object, then they can be worshipped and really, in a sense, bargained with. Where the idolater can say, look, I have done this. I have acknowledged you as a god or a goddess. I have offered the sacrifices. I've sacrificed my my livestock. I've sacrificed my wealth. I've sacrificed my grain. I've sacrificed maybe even my daughter or my son so that you would be favorable to me. And so now I can not only worship you, but I can ask you of things. I've bargained with you. I've done my part. Now you can do your part for me. That's what idolatry looked like. But understand that they were actually worshiping spiritual beings, but that by the means of these carved and graven images, they were able to localize these gods and goddesses and use their powers for their own purposes. That's what idolatry really was. I don't know if it's helpful to you or not, but it's helpful to me to think of the story of Aladdin. You've got a genie, which is a powerful spiritual being who gets contained in a bottle. And by containing that genie, then Aladdin is able to control that genie. That genie is able to to do things for him. It's not surprising that when fallen, depraved, sinful human beings create a God, they create a God in their own image. Just like God created us in his image, when we want to create false gods, we tend to create them in our own image. Think about the the ancient Roman gods or the Greek gods. They were just like us. Jealous, prideful, petty. All the sins we have, the Roman gods, the Greek gods, they had them all too. They just had superpowers, that's all. As we're going to see what idol worship does what the ultimate purpose of idol worship is. Why would would people with so much incredible, powerful evidence to the one creator God who made all things in the universe, why would people want to worship these false gods and goddesses? Why? Because ultimately the goal is to glorify yourself. 
actually to worship yourself. That's the goal of idol worship because it's really all, as everything else is in the life of any sinner, it's all about me. Idols are man-made and we make them in our own depraved image. Secondly, God says, idols are false. Look at verse 18. He calls an idol speechless and he says in verse 19, he calls the idol a silent stone and then asks the question, can this teach? It's speechless, it's silent. What can you learn from an idol? An idolater goes to an idol in order to get revelation, to learn truth, to especially learn about the future. So many idolaters, when they go to an idol, they want to know, what's my future like? Because my future's out of my control. I, I need you to tell me about my future so that I can control my life. But idols can't give revelation. They are only wood, stone, and metal. There is no spiritual being that's going to guide them into truth connected to that idol. But it is interesting in verse 18, he calls an idol a teacher of lies. That's because the idol points to a false god and a false hope. That's what an idol does. It points to a false god and a false hope. That's why I, I mentioned Isaiah's long description of an idolater in Isaiah chapter 44, you know how that passage ends. It ends describing the state of the idolater. He says, he has a deluded heart that has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Isn't that really what the apostle Paul was saying in the first chapter of the book of Romans where he describes fallen mankind and he says there, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they, didn't, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Exchanged the one true creator God who is plainly obvious to him in all that he has made. Instead, they turned to their own man-made gods in their own image. They, in verse 25, Paul goes on to say, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's idolatry. It's a lie. It's our nature to seek out gods that we can manipulate, that we can work for, that we can please on our own terms and therefore ultimately glorify ourselves. In John 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. Satan uses idolatry in whatever form it is. He uses idolatry to deceive people, to lead them astray. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. But then he goes on, interestingly, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians to say this. He says, what, talking about 
pagans who would offer sacrifices to idols and sacrifices of food particularly and how the Christian is to see that and understand that. What he says is what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Demons who serve Satan, the father of lies. Satan uses idolatry to get sinful human beings to turn their back upon the true God and to actually worship demons because demons are serving the purpose of Satan, which is to lead us astray from the one true God. Satan's prime directive is to get us to reject our creator and to reject his word, his truth, and trust anything else but him. He's happy to have us trust anything else in this created realm. An idol, a person, a career, wealth, status, whatever it might be. He's happy to have us truly worship anything else but the one true God. Sure, he would love it if the whole world was filled with Satan worshipers. But there aren't many Satan worshipers around. Because Satan realizes it's actually much more effective to get people to worship other created things than the one true God. It's easier to get people to trust in created things, things of this creation, things of this world, things of the way this world operates, instead of the one true God. Because it's ultimately, like I said, it's all about us. We want what we want our way for our purposes, our agenda, our kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, at the time that we're talking about in the era of Habakkuk, Nebuchadnezzar worshipped false gods, like all the Babylonians. Marduk was the chief god of the Babylonians. He would have worshipped Marduk and all the other lesser gods in his religion. But you know what he ultimately put up as a statue for the people to bow down before? It was a statue of himself. Because that's the end result. That's what idolatry leads to, is self-glorification. So idols are foolish because they're man-made. Idols are foolish because they're a lie. The third reason they're foolish that God gives us here is because idols are lifeless. They're dead, lifeless. Sinners make idols for themselves in order to find salvation as they define it. To find the good life, the abundant life. But verse 19 says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise. It's foolish to call upon these idols in order to get revelation from these false gods, these false spiritual beings, to seek guidance, to seek wisdom, to seek prosperity, to seek meaning, to seek purpose, to seek identity. It's foolish. The magicians in Pharaoh's court called upon their gods, but none of the plagues and miracles came. The 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel cried out and shouted and cut themselves in obedience to their gods, but no fire came from heaven. The, the wise men in the court of Nebuchadnezzar called upon their gods, but they could not interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar. The bottom line of God's message to Habakkuk about idols is found in the end of verse 19. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. 
God is saying, how can an idol save you? How can an idol give you life? How can an idol give you meaning? How can your life, an idol give you purpose and security and hope and identity? How can an idol do that if it has no life in itself? I think of the children's story, The Velveteen Rabbit, which is a story about a stuffed rabbit that becomes real because the little boy treated him as though he was real and believed that he was real, and so eventually in the story he becomes real. It doesn't work with idols. No matter how much you may believe they're real, no matter how much you believe that they may be able to give you life to save you from whatever fears you have, desires to give you whatever desires you have, there's no life in them, no breath, no life to give. But remember what the gospel of the book of Habakkuk is. The righteous shall live by his faith. Faith in who? Faith in what? The troubling trend I've seen in the public witness of famous Christian people, Christian athletes, Christian entertainers, Christian politicians, when they want to talk about their spiritual life, they'll say, my faith is really important to me. My faith has gotten me through some really hard times. I'm a person of faith. For some reason, they're not willing to say, Jesus Christ is very important to me. Jesus Christ has gotten me through some really difficult points in my life. I'm a person who belongs to Jesus Christ. Because faith in faith is worthless. Faith in Buddha is worthless. Faith in Muhammad is worthless. Faith in Oprah is worthless. What is, it that, what, what is it that would keep somebody from saying, my faith is in Jesus Christ publicly? Maybe your idol is the acceptance of others. I think it's a very common one, even among us as Christians. The acceptance and approval of others is so important to me that I don't want to use the name of Jesus Christ in a public setting. What are your idols is a question that we must ask ourselves even though we live in a imageless Western society. What are your idols? And when we ask that, what we're really asking, the core question there is what is the object of your faith? What or who do you truly trust in day in and day out? What or who in your life gives you meaning, hope, security, satisfaction, or a sense of, of identity. Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods, and in that book, he, says, he defines an idol in this way. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you, that you seek to give, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. What is it that is in that place in your life that is that important to you, that gives you comfort, that gives you pleasure, that gives you peace, that gives you purpose? What is taking God's place in your life? What is it that you can't live without? Your job, your family, your hobbies, your ministry, your health, your theology, 
I think suffering, much of the time, suffering is God taking away our idols so that we will realize that that's what we've really been trusting in. Suffering is often God taking away the things that we've idolized in our lives, that are taking God's place in our life, that we are trusting in, that we're putting our faith in, and we don't realize, or at least we won't admit to ourselves that we're doing it. Well, that brings us to verse 20, which is God's final word to Habakkuk. And how appropriate that the very last word that God speaks to Habakkuk is about a vision of his glory. It is foolish to put your faith and trust in any idol, any false god, any created thing, anything of this world and its systems. It is foolish to put your faith in idolatry. Only Yahweh, the God of the covenant, is worthy as an object of your faith. That's what verse 20 is about. But the Lord, and then when the Lord is in capital letters like that in the ESV, it's the covenant name of God, the personal name of God, Yahweh. But the Lord, the one true God, the creator and the redeemer, the provider and the judge of all things, but the Lord Yahweh is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. When the Bible tells us to keep silence before God, it's the same thing as what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 46 when he says, be still and know that I am God. Bow in submission and reverence before the one true God. It says he is in his holy temple. That's not his temple in Jerusalem. That's the temple in heaven. The throne over the universe. It's the same thing that Psalm 11 verses 4 and 5 say. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God is on the throne over the universe. All things happen according to his will. The Babylonians needed to hear this warning. God's judgment is coming because they were not silent before the one true God who is on the throne over all people. But Habakkuk needed to hear it as well, didn't he? Because you remember the first complaint of Habakkuk back in chapter 1. Let me read it for you again. This is how the whole dialogue starts. Chapter 1, verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you look idly? Why do you idly look at wrong? See, this is a message for Habakkuk, one of God's people, saying, Habakkuk, you've lost sight of the fact that God is on his throne. And he is orchestrating all the world events, even the ones that make no sense to you at all. He is orchestrating these things for his purposes. Be silent before him. Bow in submission and reverence. Unlike the idols of the nations, God is not mute. God is not deaf. God is not dead or lifeless. Trust him. Let all the earth keep silence before him, it says. All the earth. Yahweh alone is God. The one who has formed a covenant with his people is the one true God. There are no other gods besides him. He is the creator of all things, especially of mankind, which is made in his image. 
and he is the judge of all whom he has made in his image, we are all accountable to him. Assyrian, Babylonian, Greek, Roman, Soviet, American, we are all accountable to this one true God. America is pluralistic, and that's the way we tend to think, but God's kingdom is not. All must bow a knee. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord when he returns. Our idols, when you think about it, our idols require us to make great sacrifices for them, to work hard for them in hopes that they will satisfy us and give us what we want and make us what we want ourselves to be. But Yahweh, the covenant God, the whole basis of the covenant that he's made with his people is that he is the one who makes the sacrifice. He is the one who gives his only beloved begotten son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the eternal son of God, came, lived a perfect life, and then offered up his life as a sacrifice on the cross. And that is the basis of our acceptance to the one true God. There is no other way, no other name under heaven by which a man may be saved. We do not approach God through idols. We approach God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. It is the only way. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith in the shed blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, which has made us right with our holy God, which has taken away the judgment that we deserve for all of our idolatry, all of our rebellion. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Father, we confess before you that we were born into this world as idolaters. We were born into this world with our backs turned to you and our fists raised, shaking against you. And Lord, we sought our own false gods, rejected you as the one true creator, redeemer, provider, and judge. We rejected you and created gods in our own image in order to glorify ourselves and build our own kingdom. But Lord, you have provided a way for us to be forgiven. Lord, I pray that as we consider these verses this morning, I pray that our hearts would be laid open before you that you would search us deeply and show us, Lord, ways in which we have looked to created things for the things that we should be looking to you for. How we have sought satisfaction and purpose and meaning and acceptance in people and things in our lives instead of seeking you. Lord, you are on the throne. I pray, Lord, that in our repentance we would live as though we believe it's true. Thank you for Jesus Christ and all that he has done to make us right with you. We now come to the Lord's table celebrating your grace and goodness to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.